Hello. Hey. Is everybody awake out there? Way to bated breath for me to plug in. Oh, if, if only that were true. Good morning. I am Brad. I'm the senior pastor here. And I know it was mentioned that I'm open for coffee, but I am open for coffee. In fact, tomorrow I'm meeting with someone uh, newer to the church from running the coffee and uh, get to know each other a little bit. So if you are newer to the church and you would like to learn more about the church or connect, um, have any questions, uh, hit me up. Email me. My email is in your bulletin. It's on our website. I would love to get coffee with you as well. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, so that's that. All right. Today we are starting a new series, uh, and I'm anticipating it's going to be a particularly fun one. And before I tell you what it's actually about, uh, I want to sort of set the tone. And so a little bit ago, a couple friends of mine turned me on to this, what they called a new craze that was spreading across the globe. I'm not sure how far it got, uh, but I think if it got a little bit farther, that would be pretty cool. Check this out. technical form of anonymous generosity there is. It requires money, hands, eyes, and finesse. The only thing about a put pocket is that if the target catches you, you can't give him the cash. Show him the moves, fellas. How's it going, man? Yeah. Are we uh, just doing the old sign yeah, painting here? Uh... Basically, he's just like water paint. Yeah. What do you have to? What's that? What do you have to? Uh, I was just trying to put 20 bucks in your pocket. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you got me. Ah, oh, yeah. oh, no, you caught me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I was just reading about Gordon Ramsay coming to town. Just so excited, I'm lost in my thoughts. Hands <laughs> going back in pockets. So, yeah, oh, just a bit, just a bit woozy. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Sorry, just a, whoa, oh, just a bit lightheaded. Ah, oh, you found it. Yeah. Oh, I got to take it. Very nice of you to help, though. Hey, mate, do you know where uh, where Beach Road might be? No idea, mate. No, I don't need to guess if I tell All right, no problem. Thanks very much. <laughs> oh, so 
drunk. <laughs> so drunk. Oh, I'm so drunk. Oh, I don't know what I'm doing. How are you going, mate? Oh, I'm so drunk. Oh, no, you're fast. <laughs> Okay. Not a lot of time to go, but we've got heaps of money left. We're going to give away multiple notes. Let's bring in the decoy. Excuse me, mate. Can we get you to do a call of chalice? Oh. My man. Speech. First of all, I want to thank my connect. The most important person with all due respect. Thanks to the duffel bag, the brown paper bag, the Nike shoe box for holding all this cash. Okay. Boys in blue who agree before the bag. The first push you ever made the smash. So, uh, who thinks they know what the theme of our next sermon series is? Generosity, that's right. So, what I love about this is one of the things we're going to talk about, and that I think most of us believe, but we need to be reminded of, and if not, I want to try and get you to think this might be a possibility, is that generosity is one of the things... Uh, that we are designed for but forget about. And when we reconnect to it, uh, all kinds of... What, uh, those guys are called Hamish and Andy. They're from Australia. You probably figured that out. The fake cola test, you see that right at the end, and they put all the tons of money in the one guy's back pocket, and then they're like, thumbs up and high five. That's the innate response uh, that's built into us when we're generous. A life kind of bubbles up. Uh, and some of you have had this experience. Some of you want this experience. Some of you are a little dubious, perhaps. But that high five, that thumbs up, is something that can be born or nurtured or blossom or explode into your life as you learn to be a, a more and more generous person. So I hope Hamish and Andy have sort of set the tone for us because that's what I want. Is that something you want? You know, one of the things that I've noticed is children, small children, let me give that caveat, <laughs> uh, tend to get this. You know, I have two toddlers right now, uh, and there's a lot of kids in my life. So a lot of my friends have toddlers. Sometimes I have to be very careful about where I step. <laughs> and one thing I've noticed is that little children... <laughs> love to give. Uh, one little guy in our church, uh, not one of my kids, uh, used to always put me in a good mood because every time he saw me, not that my kids don't do this too, he would run up to me every Sunday and give me a big spontaneous hug. And he'd always have something to give me besides hug like a goldfish cracker. Um, what was the other kind of food he had? This isn't really that important a detail. I don't know why I'm Spending time on it. He would often give me little, little tidbits of food. Or if I don't know if you know, it's real little kids. They'll just run up. They want to give you something, whatever it is, like a Lego or some little piece of something that they think is really cool, and they want to share it. And that, I think, is where we start. I think it's innate. I think we want to be generous. We enjoy giving. A lot of us identify with, at a certain age, it's, it, it, you love seeing people open the gift that you got for them more than you even love opening gifts. But then something kind of switches 
right around two, maybe a little earlier. You probably experienced this too. Uh, little people learn the name, the word mine. All of a sudden, everything is a zero-sum game, especially if they have siblings. And if somebody has something, they need it. They, won't, they don't want to give it to anyone. They want to hold on to it. And they start to lock it down, if you will. And I think that's just a reflection of human nature. But also, I think we see that in our wider culture. I think we live in what some people have called a transactional culture, where we're set up more to sell and buy than we are to give and receive. And you've often heard people say there's no free lunches. And anyone who gives something away for free can be considered an oddity or even worse. Uh, Robert Kuttner wrote a book called Everything for Sale, and he says this, the person who volunteers time, who helps a stranger, who agrees to work for a modest wage out of commitment to the public good, who, desi- who desists from littering even when no one is looking, begins to feel like a sucker. In other words, to give is to lose. And that's a total paradigm shift from to give is to benefit that I think we're born with. When as soon as we have something good at those earliest stages, we want to share it with someone else. But is that true? I certainly don't know anyone who wants to be considered greedy But I do know a lot of people who would love to be more generous but feel like they can't. So for the next few weeks, we're going to take a more in-depth look at the idea of what it means to be generous people, the effect it can have in our lives, and how how we can lean into that. And when we say generosity, we're talking about a lifestyle of sharing freely what God has given us. So today we're going to start laying a foundation by looking at God, God's character, and see what we can learn there. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. I'll be projected. It's in your bulletin too. And this is Paul. He's an early church leader who started churches, startup congregations all over the Near East, and then uh, he would write letters to them to try and encourage them. And he writes this. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the first thing I'd like to point out from this passage is the way that that God is portrayed. So in this passage and really throughout Scripture, God is a giver, continually, constantly Always. In verse 8, it says, it is the gift of God. And the idea here is that God loves to give. It's who he is. Always, always giving. And not only that, but God is in a unique place to give in that he has unlimited resources. Right? So Paul writes in the 11th chapter of his letter to the Romans, speaking of God, he writes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So everything is God's to give. That's probably not a shocking sort of theological point, but it's worth noting everything is God's to give. He is uniquely positioned to be generous, and he loves to give. Uh, James writes about this in another part of Scripture. James writes, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, 
who does not change like the shifting shadows. So every good and perfect gift comes from God, and he never changes. He's always giving, always, always, always. He's giving good and perfect gifts. And he's a particular kind of giver, too. He's a giver that gives by grace. You may have noticed this. It says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. To give by grace means to give to someone who doesn't deserve it and cannot give back to you. Giving to someone who cannot pay you back can never earn what you're giving. God gives to us by grace because we have nothing to offer him in return. Now, you may not see it like that. I mean, certainly you have lots of abilities and talents, but God doesn't need you. I'm not saying God doesn't want to work through you and that he didn't give you those talents for reasons, but if you back it up a few steps, he's in all, has all. Every resource is his. We don't really have anything that we can offer God because essentially anything we have already belongs to him. In that verse we read earlier, for, for from him and through him and to him are all things, is preceded by this question, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? And the answer, of course, is no one. All things are his. There's nothing he lacks or that we could give to him. Therefore, God gives by grace. And what that means for us, I think this is really helpful to understand, is that there are no transactions with God. Now, what do I mean? Well, one implication of this is that and we're tempted to do this, especially when we're in difficult situations, right? We want to negotiate with God. We want to work out a deal, right? All right, God, I really need X, Y, or Z. And if X, Y, or Z would happen, I promise I would always do A, B, or C, right? You can count. I will do this, this, this. And we try and work out a plan, a deal, a transaction with God. The problem with that is God doesn't actually need anything that we have to give. And we can't convince God to give us anything or, or even relationship with him. You guys remember this movie? I'm, I'm going to expect that the answer may be no because you would have had to watch it. Most of you would probably have had to watch it on some cable network or something. Ever heard of the movie Amadeus? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Amadeus is actually a very well-regarded, famous, and I think award-winning play before it was ever a movie. Um, and in that play movie, there's a character named Solieri. Solieri is one of the two main characters. And when he's a boy, the, one of the first things you see about him is he kneels down and he prays this prayer, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous throughout the world, dear God. Make me immortal in return I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life, and I will help my fellow man all I can. Now, why would Solieri think that God would respond to that prayer? 
we must have believed on some level that God is a negotiator and that he, Solieri, had something to offer to God. And Solieri had bought into sort of a transactional understanding of the universe, that everything must be bought, sold, and negotiated. And when he gets up from that prayer, he gets up thinking that he has a deal with God. Anyone who's seen the play or the movie, uh, does it work out for him? It doesn't? Of course it doesn't. Why would I have it in the sermon, right? <laughs> but God never agrees to the bargain. And in fact, what happens is God gives musical genius to a rude, womanizing tart named Mozart. God's goods are not for sale. He's a giver. He's generous. He gives by grace, not because of anything that we can do or give him. Even our good deeds, even our lives, there's no trades. So God doesn't give because we offer him anything. He gives because of grace. And this is true even with the biggest and grandest gifts that he gives. So he doesn't give them so that we will pay him back if that were possible. He gives by grace because he's loving, a loving God who is by nature generous. Think of his greatest gift. I would think the greatest gift that God gives us is the opportunity to connect with him, to have a real relationship with the Almighty, with the with the creator of the universe, the essence of everything. And when that's talked about in this short little passage that we read, it says, for it is by grace that you've been saved. So this type of relating comes by grace. And notice how the scripture speaks about this grace. It says, you have been saved. And what's helpful to note about this is that that verb, have been, that's used by Paul is called a a perfect passive participle. You can forget that now. You don't need to know that. <laughs> but what it means, I think, is helpful. It's a fancy term for a simple idea. Uh, the idea is that uh, this experience of connecting to God, of salvation, is passive in that it's done to you. You don't do it yourself. It, it happens to you. That's the first part. And the perfect part uh, of perfect path or passive perfect or perfect passive, that's the way you do it, is that the past is continually affecting the future. That's what that means. So when he says has been, it's happening to you and it continues to affect you for the rest of your life. So we begin this relationship with God by grace and we continue by grace all the days of our lives. It never changes. And we can make a mistake if we think something along the lines of, be good, do well, follow God, and he'll bless me. That's bargaining. And actually, it can turn into self-righteousness. And self-righteousness lacks the power to really bring positive change into our lives because it simply justifies the status quo. But through grace... God wants to encourage what is good and healthy in us and transform what needs to be changed. God wants to shape us, to mold us, to transform us because when God gives, he also 
gives as an artist. So he's a giver, but there's a way that he gives. He gives as an artist. So in verse 10 it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I don't usually, if you hear a lot, spend a lot of time getting into words like I am this week, but this is another one I think that's really helpful. So the word here that's translated handiwork is the word poema. Sound like anything else? Any other words you might know? Poema, po, poem. It's where we get the word poem. It's the same root word. And it speaks of more than just a project that God does. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce calls it, or translated it as, we are God's work of art, as opposed to his handiwork. And it seems to me that when, what Paul is saying here is that we are God's work of art, that through grace, he's shaping us, creating us. Now, art is a lot of things. It's really hard to describe what art is. <laughs> it's usually easier to use um, adjectives to describe art like beautiful or awe-inspiring or challenging. But maybe the best definition I've heard along the way is that art is an expression of an artist's inner being expression of an artist's inner being. So to say that we're God's work of art is to say that we're an expression of his inner being. So it makes sense that if God is shaping us into his work of art, a work of art that reflects his inner being, that he would be shaping us to be generous and to thrive when we are generous. And this, I think, is what we see happening in this verse. We're being shaped by grace into God's work of art to do what? It says to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do, to be generous and care about the world around us. If I'm understanding this correctly, this means that God doesn't just shower gift upon gift on us simply so that we can experience pleasure, although I think that's part of it. There's a purpose a calling, an expectation for the perfect gifts that our Heavenly Father showers down on us. And I think we mistake, make a mistake if we view God simply as a big gift-giving machine as well. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about this um, in The Problem of Pain. He writes, We want, in fact, not so much a Father in Heaven as a Grandfather in Heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see the young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. He goes on to say that we don't get that kind of God. We get a God of love, and that this God of love is, quote, a consuming fire himself, the love that made the world persistent as the artist's love for his work. And what I'm taking from this is that what we're seeing in these passages is that God is not just a giver who gives for our pleasure alone, although I do think he wants us to enjoy the gifts he gives us, but he's a giver who gives as an artist who gives for our splendor, not just our enjoyment. See, what makes us shine? What shows the splendor of God in us? What shows that we are a beautiful work of art? It's our good works. So God gives so that we can give. 
And his aim is that we should be a shining work of art as we're transformed into generous givers, not just fortunate receivers. That's when we shine. We shine as we become generous givers and not just fortunate receivers. So grace transforms us. It's God's tool of artistry, his paintbrush, his sculptor's file. He uses it to encourage us and to make us generous and turn us outward to look for opportunities to do good works. Now, you might be wondering, well, what does God get out of all this? Aren't we giving back to God if we give to others? Not really. Because remember, God doesn't need anything. But like any artist, God gets the joy of looking on his work of art. And what do we get out of this? Well, we mentioned already, we shine. We, we connect to what is most important in life. We find meaning. And whatever it is that we need to be connected to or experience to make life what life is supposed to be, we touch. That thing that everyone in this room is hungry for more of, we touch when we're generous. And we receive an increased flow of grace in our lives. I don't know that people always pick up on this. There's a famous story that Jesus told. Sometimes it's called the parable of the talents. It's somewhat controversial. Some people love it, some people don't. But it's a story of uh, this, this landowner who has three servants, and he gives them all uh, the same amount of money, and then he says, I think he does, Different amounts, sorry. He gives them different amounts, and he says, put them to work. Someone else here has read the Bible. That's great. So he puts him to work, and he says, I'm going away for a long time. When I come back, I want to see a return. So the, the first servant gets really scared, really possessive, doesn't want to lose what he has. He digs a hole, puts it in the ground. Second servant puts it to work. Let's say he had two talents or two bags of cash. Puts those to work, and he makes two more, and he has four. The other person has four bags of cash, and by the time uh, the landowner comes back, he's got eight. And so the landowner comes back, and he's super happy with the servants that have gotten a return for their work, right? But he's super not happy <laughs> with the one who buried it in the ground. And so what he ends up doing is he takes what was buried in the ground, and he gives it to the third servant who is getting the returns, so that guy goes out and makes even more money with it. Now, some people hear that story and think, man, it's really harsh, man. The guy was just afraid. He put it in the ground. You took that away from him. But I think what we can miss is that it's not that, it's not that we earn grace or that God is stingy. It's that if we show that we'll take what God has given us and share it with other people, he will give us more and more and more and more because he wants to see his grace shared around the world. So if we take or if you take whatever gifts you have in your life and you share them with other people, God gets excited and he's like, I'm going to give that person more because they're going to share it. 
They're not going to bury it in a hole. They're not going to keep it for themselves. They're not going to live in fear. They're going to invest in the world and the people and the systems and everything around them. And therefore, the, the splendor, my splendor is not only going to show through them, but it's going to show through the lives that they touch and affect. So it's not that we can earn more grace from God, but if we show that we will share what we're given, he'll give more because that's what he wants to see. That's who he is in his innermost being. And if we reflect that, he pours, he pours it on. Anybody been on a water side slide in their life? Most people, maybe? So, does anyone know how you go faster on a water slide? Yeah? Well, shout out. How do you go faster? Someone say yes over here. So more water, right? What's, that's one way. And what's an, Does anyone know another way? This one's against the rules, but you can go a lot faster. What? Less surface area. Okay, now we're getting scientific. That's probably true. More people at the same time. I'm sure there are a lot of right answers out here, but that was the one I was looking for. So what they tell you to do is go down one at a time. But when I was a kid, what we used to do is one person would go down first and put her arms against the wall of the water slide, right? Stop. And then the next person would come down, grab her ankles. And then the next person would grab ankles. And you, she might like slide down a little bit to make more room. The longer your train was, the faster you went. All right? And the other way, of course, to go fast would be to turn up the water. I think that's what's happening when it comes to grace in our lives. If we want the flow to pick up speed, we've got to include other people. Take what we have and give it. Include it. Stop your hands. Let them hook onto your ankles, whatever it is. And then the water, God pours out more water, and you're going now dangerously fast and you're probably going to get kicked off the ride. That's not my point. I'm just saying there's something similar. I don't know why it makes sense to me anyway. You might forget this, and that's fine, uh, to uh, sharing what you have with other people and the flow of God's grace increase, turning up the water so that your life moves. And it might be a little bit out of your control. You know what? That's probably a good thing. None of the, none, that might be a big statement. It seems like few of the biggest and best things that God puts in our lives happen where we're comfortable and where everything makes sense and we're certain of what's happening. Faith is born in the uncertainty when things get a little bit out of our control at least, right? I think generosity is like that as well. You give a little bit more than you think that you can as a step of faith. And then you see what God does. You get out on the water where it's risky and scary. There's this thing called the paradox of true love that I read about in a book by Miroslav Volf. It said, it, it's this simple idea. The more self-focused we become, the less satisfied we are with our lives. You know, God still loves and gives no matter who you are but the flow is less. The more we turn outward, the more the flow is increased and we're fulfilled in life. 
Now, how do we get on this ride to even begin with? And I started hinting towards this. In verse 8 it says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. Through faith. We receive God's gifts through faith. Faith, I think a simple way to think of faith is to embrace and put our trust in God and his grace. Usually it's in some area of uncertainty. And part of this is to recognize that fundamentally we are receivers. That there is a level of dependence that we have on God. No matter how self-actualized or how successful we are, it's so much more healthy to understand even that is a gift. And the more we realize and can connect to our need for God, the more opportunity there is to experience more of his grace. Now, we don't like the idea of being dependent, right? That's where faith happens too, uncertainty and dependence. And, and, and if anything, uh, it kind of can feel like, you know, Martin Luther put it this way, and this gets repeated, I don't think it's super helpful, so I'll repeat it right here. He said, we are beggars, that is true. And I think those kinds of ways of putting it, even if there's truth there, it kind of gives this idea that we're, we're, we're knocking ourselves, that we're denying our human dignity, that we're some meager little specks of beggars that can't do anything right, and we're so miserable, horrible creations that, oh, thank God that he would deign to ever like look our way because we're so awful, and he's just going to put up with us. Now, I agree we have nothing to offer God. I said that a lot. But that's not what dependence is. I think that's really a short-sighted view of us as beggars. And what I see here is that if we will embrace through faith our dependence on God, we can be what Wolf calls God-empowered creatures. That as we come in dependence, God pours out empowerment into our lives through grace so that we can be so much more than we could ever be on our own without his grace. And from this point of view, dependence actually frees us to achieve our greatest things in life. Dependence frees us to live beyond ourselves. One last quote from Wolf. He says, If faith denies anything, it denies that we are tiny, self-obsessed specks of matter who are reaching for the stars but remain hopelessly nailed to the earth, stuck in our own self-absorption. So how do we respond to this, this God who's an amazing giver? Uh, let me suggest two, two great ways. The first is this. To, and there's nothing in your notes here. If, if you find this meaningful, you can just write it down. Um, understand your relationship to giving. Here's what I mean. When you give, do you feel like you're losing or do you feel like those two Aussie guys, Hamish and Andy? Do you feel like you're losing? Are you afraid of having enough if you're generous? Do you think God will really increase the flow of grace in your life if you learn to be more generous? And I think the learned part there is, is actually kind of insightful because I feel like 
Although innately, we all want to be generous people. We are in such a culture that, I'm not saying people aren't generous, but we're in a very transactional culture. And so I think we have to actually learn, train ourselves how to be generous, or it won't happen. So understand your relationship to giving. How do you really feel about giving? Do you feel like you're losing? Just think about that right now. Like when you think about giving, sharing, uh, are you worried? Do you feel like you're losing? And the second thing would be, how do you exercise some faith? Faith is really the pad you sit on, on the water slide, that enables you to ride the flow of God's grace. What would stretch you in the world of generosity? What makes you nervous? You know, one time Jesus, it seems like he was, when we get the story of his life, he's always doing this. He's traveling. Um, and oftentimes what would happen is random people would run up to him and ask him questions or ask for mercy and all kinds of things. So one time he's, he's on one of his trips and this young guy comes up, this young guy who's got everything. He's young, he's good looking, he's got money, he's got power. He's called a ruler in some versions of the story. Uh, he's also considered a very righteous person. So he's checking all of the boxes, uh, but he realizes he's miserable. So when he sees Jesus, he falls to his knees and he says, Jesus, um, here's all the things I've done. You know, basically, why am I feel so terrible? Why am I not enjoying life? I've got everything. I'm doing all the right stuff. And Jesus says, there's one thing that you lack. Is give, take all that you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. Come follow me. That freaked him out. It actually didn't go over very well with him, and, and we don't know what happens with him. I think one of the reasons that story is, is in the Bible is not so much that, it's, that this young ruler uh, couldn't give up his money as much as I think that is really... That can be a fill-in-the-blank in our lives. What is the thing in your life that if Jesus said, sell that thing or get rid of that thing and come follow me, that would freak you out? It says in the story of this rich young ruler that uh, he was deeply grieved. And it's the same word that's used to describe Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and looking forward to being crucified the next day. He was grieved. Let's do a little exercise. Why don't you close your eyes? That's how we'll end our, our sermon. And I just want to, you to imagine um, you're somewhere in Philly uh, going about your daily routine, but you feel bad. You're feeling rough. And we all have that thing in our lives that puts us in that place. I don't know what it is for you, but just imagine that you're having one of those days where it's overwhelming you a little bit. Now, it's Philly. It's modern day. You're using your imagination. And you sat down in a shop, and you're getting coffee or a sandwich, whatever you like. And before you know it, you notice someone sat next to you. 
just imagine the setting in that shop, that cafe, wherever you are. And you turn, and it's Jesus. He's not in a robe with the, all that stuff, but you just know it, who it is. You just know. And you turn to him and you say, what is it that I'm missing? That I'm feeling this way? And Jesus looks you in the eye and he says, one thing you lack. Now just take a moment. What is the thing that Jesus asked you to sell or to give away? It might, it might not be money, but it's something you can share that you would be afraid to lose. It makes you nervous. What does Jesus ask for? All right, you can, you can open your eyes and look up here again if you want to. I don't know if that was helpful for you, but what I'm hoping is that the Holy Spirit can take those little opportunities, and when you're not expecting it, you can have an OMG moment. Oh, that. So, this series, in part, is designed to help you find your way into sharing that thing and seeing what happens, seeing if the flow of grace doesn't increase in your life, seeing if you don't touch something that you were made for that you've been missing in terms of your divine, in the image of God, being. That might be a little, what's the word, atrophied, stuck. Let's pray. Jesus, um, God, I pray, I feel like when we talk about giving things up, Lord, it, that sounds kind of heavy, but I pray that wouldn't be the tone of this series. I pray we'd have that Aussie feel to this series, that put-pocketing feel, that, wow, I I took a risk. I started to sh give out of this place in my life and look what happened. I pray that, our, that you would release joy in this community during this season and this series and that we would have some stories to tell. That we would experience you as a good God in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen.